1: You have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host.
2: A risque
3: dance that seduced a city.
4: There's no way she's not going to get noticed.
3: A natural force that defies explanation.
5: Pieces of land were falling in.
6: We were in imminent danger. And the mysterious death of a mob legend... If you think about it, who at that moment wasn't mad at this guy?
3: Within the walls of great institutions lie secrets waiting to be revealed. These are the Mysteries at the Museum. Washington, D.C., home to those given the weighty task of protecting the country's citizens. To those ends, the art of espionage often proves essential. And nowhere shines a brighter light on this dark and secretive world than the International Spy Museum. Here, some of the most advanced tools of statecraft are on display. From Enigma machines, to disguised weapons, to listening devices hidden in everyday objects.
7: Amidst this gadgetry, however, sits a much simpler artifact. It's a clear plastic case, about one inch square, half an inch deep. It's got a powder in it that's flesh-toned, and it's got a typewritten label on the top of it that says "erase." Yet museum historian Mark Stout can testify that these makeup compacts,
3: diminutive size, belies their crucial role in a daring top-secret
7: mission. This seems inconsequential in itself, but it's a critical detail in a much larger plan on which the life and death of Americans hinge. What part did
3: this makeup play in one of the most harrowing rescue missions in American history? Fall 1979, Tehran. Iran is in the grips of a full-blown political and cultural revolution. After 38 years in power, the U.S.-supported Shah has been forced from power by militants loyal to the spiritual leader Ayatollah Khomeini when the reviled former ruler seeks shelter in the United States, mass anti-American protests break out in the Iranian capital. And on
7: November 4th, in front of the U.S. Embassy, the fervor reaches a crescendo. People start climbing over the walls and pretty soon the gates are open and everybody is, is streaming into the embassy compound. The angry mob quickly overwhelms
3: security and takes over 60 Americans hostage. But in the midst of the chaos, Six U.S. government workers manage to evade capture. Cora and Mark Lijack, Joe and Kathy Stafford, Bob Anders, and
7: Lee Schatz take shelter in the homes of Canadian diplomats. So the Americans are safe for the moment, but they're kind of stuck, and there's danger that they'll be found out. Over 6,000 miles away, the CIA swings into action,
3: and Officer Tony Mendez is tasked with bringing the embassy staffers home.
7: It's nearly an impossible mission. All of Iran is suspicious about and on the lookout for Americans. But Mendez seizes on
3: an offer from the Canadian government. They are willing to provide the six with false identities and the paperwork to support them. But how can Mendez possibly explain the newly minted Canadians' presence in revolutionary Iran? After a series of false starts, The CIA operative comes up with an outlandish scheme, ready-made for the movies. The six Americans will pose
7: as a Canadian production team, scouting possible locations for an upcoming sci-fi feature. Tony had this sense that people from Hollywood would be so self-absorbed that they would think that it would be perfectly reasonable to be traveling to Iran in the middle of this revolutionary chaos and wouldn't even think twice about it. But for the plan to work, it needs to appear as real as possible. So Tony heads for Hollywood. Tony makes contact with a makeup artist that he's worked with over the years. They establish an office called Studio Six Films. They select a script that's been circulating around Hollywood. The phony epic is entitled Argo. And just in case the Iranians question the story, Mendez makes sure that the production
3: looks as real as anything else in Hollywood by taking out ads in industry newspapers. Most importantly, the six embassy staffers are assigned various roles on the production team. Now it's time to put the plan into action. January 25th, 1980. Tony Mendez arrives in Tehran, posing as Kevin Costa Harkins, Argo producer. There he meets the Americans for the first time and distributes detailed breakdowns
7: of their false identities. But there is a problem. One of the concerns here is that Cora had worked on the visa line with Iranians who were seeking visas to come to the United States. Because of her public role at the embassy,
3: Mendez is worried that the Iranians at the airport may recognize Cora, which would be disastrous. So Mendez presents her with this makeup to obscure her identity by covering distinctive moles and freckles. Tony then
7: urges the Americans to memorize the details of their new identities backwards and forwards. They were concerned about what would happen if this plan went wrong. Are they going to end up shot as CIA spies? At 5 a.m. on January 28th,
3: the nervous embassy staffers arrive at the airport, ready to board a Swiss Air flight to Zurich. But first, they must make it past the much feared immigration control, where their passports and visas are scrutinized. To everyone's relief, no one questions their Canadian paperwork, and the group
7: sails through. They can almost taste freedom. But then... There's an announcement that their flight has been delayed. There's mechanical difficulties of some sort. Unaware if the Iranians have become alerted to their presence, the Americans attempt
3: to remain calm as the minutes tick by. Finally, after a tense hour-long wait, the flight boards. With wheels up, The Americans know they're home free. Against all odds, Mendez has pulled off one of history's most daring escapes. 33 years later, the once classified story reaches a wider audience when a very real Argo, directed by and starring Ben Affleck as Tony Mendez, wins the Oscar for Best Picture. Today, these makeup compacts at the International Spy Museum in Washington stand as tribute to a true Hollywood ready collaboration between Canadian diplomacy, Mendez's ingenuity, and the age old art of disguise. The city of Chicago began its rise along the shores of Lake Michigan in 1833, and today, one institution chronicles its transformation from a small outpost to a Midwestern metropolis, the Chicago History Museum. It features the iconography of the city, such as the first elevated train car, cleavers used in the city's legendary meatpacking industry, and a helmet worn to battle the Great Chicago Fire of 1871. But deep in its collection lie a pair of lesser-known artifacts that once fanned a colossal controversy.
4: One is about two and a half feet long, and the other one is about three and a half feet long. And they weigh about seven pounds each. These are two white ostrich feather plumes.
3: According to curator Naomi Blumberg, these feathered artifacts once helped a washed up actress capture the gaze of the entire city. They were
4: the prized possession of this person who really rose from rags to riches.
3: To whom did these Feather fans once belong? And how did she scandalize the citizens of Chicago? The city of Chicago is preparing for the event of the year, the 1933 World's Fair.
4: The fair's focus is going to be science and technology, the idea of hope for a better future.
3: Investors have sunk millions into the event. But in the midst of the Great Depression, they fear that attendance will be low. Still, thousands of entrepreneurs and performers hope the fair will be their chance to strike it big. One of them is 29-year-old Sally Rand.
4: She's a young, blonde woman who was looking for stardom.
3: A dancer and actress from Missouri, Rand appeared in silent films in the 20s, but a speech impediment has kept her from breaking into talking pictures. She's targeted the fair as her last shot at fame and is desperate to land a job as a performer. But after reaching out to her Chicago contacts, Sally comes up empty-handed. It seems her back is against the wall.
4: She had to come up with something completely original that was going to get people to notice her.
3: Sally zeroes in on the fair's opening night gala. But without a ticket to the event, she devises a bold plan to sneak into the fair and make her presence known. As the evening gets underway, hundreds of the city's elite are gathering to celebrate in high style. Then, amidst this refined setting, the audience's attention is suddenly drawn towards the entrance. Riding a white horse borrowed from a friend, Sally storms into the gala wearing nothing but a white cape
4: there's no way she's not gonna get noticed
3: convinced she's part of the act the crowd bursts into applause as the performance concludes Sally is promptly arrested for obscenity but she's made a lasting impression
4: the fair organizers are very impressed they see dollar signs in Sally Rand
3: eager to boost attendance they facilitate her immediate release and offer Sally her very own show thrilled she quickly plans an eye-catching routine. The next day, the crowds stroll right past the science and technology exhibits to see what Sally Rand has in store. When the curtain rises, Sally emerges naked, concealed only by two ostrich feather plumes like these, now at the Chicago History Museum.
4: When Sally takes the stage, the lighting is ethereal. It's this blue light that gives her this sort of ghost-like, angel-like appearance. She has these beautiful, enormous white plumes that she's manipulating to very skillfully cover her body.
3: When she concludes, the aw-struck crowd erupts in thunderous applause.
4: She is the star of the fair.
3: Newspapers latch on to the salacious story. Ticket sales for Sally's dance skyrocket, and fair organizers couldn't be happier.
4: She is their moneymaker.
3: But her unabashed nudity is stirring up controversy.
4: There's a lot of criticism about what's taking place at the fair on the midway.
3: Naysayers are aghast that this supposedly wholesome family fair is openly promoting a nudie act. And on July 31st, 1933... Chicago's mayor, Edward Kelly, steps in. Looking to bolster the fair's family image, he has Sally arrested for indecent exposure. But this time, she won't get off so easy.
4: She's fined $200, and she's sentenced to a year in jail.
3: With the fair still underway, and the star behind bars, ticket sales plummet. The massive event has yet to turn a profit, and organizers begin to panic
4: thousands and thousands of people's lives and livelihoods are on the line here
3: with the success of the
7: world's fair at stake
3: will sally rand dance again It's August 1933 in Chicago. Controversial burlesque dancer Sally Rand has been wowing audiences at the World's Fair with her body dance routine and single-handedly propping up the fair's ailing finances. But when Sally is arrested for indecent exposure, fair organizers wonder, can the show go on? Desperate to return to the stage, Sally does not sit idly by.
4: She appeals her sentence.
3: And it seems the dancer has powerful allies. Fair organizers quickly lobby the court, arguing that in Sally's absence, attendance has dropped. The fair cannot pay back investors, and vendors are struggling.
4: A lot of people thought that the city would suffer a major economic blow if the fair didn't succeed.
3: And after consideration, the court relents.
4: And they lower her sentence to 10 days.
3: Sally pays the $200 fine and to appease the censors, agrees to wear a flesh-colored body stocking on stage. But the controversy only fans her fame. By the fall of 1933, her ticket sales hit a new high. Her intoxicating performances secure the success of the fair and launch the career of an icon.
4: And those fans really were her path to success.
3: Sally goes on to become one of the most famous burlesque dancers of the 20th century. And now, buried deep in the archives of the Chicago History Museum, these fans serve as a reminder of the entrancing performer who rescued the 1933 Chicago World's Fair. A set of heads illustrating various forms of tragic death. A pair of sneakers worn by a victim of a lightning strike, and a watch frozen in time at the moment of a head on collision. These are just part of the unsettling collection at Baltimore, Maryland's Office of the Medical Examiner, an institution favored by those with a taste for mystery and the macabre. But the most entrancing artifacts on display, at first glance, give off a confounding air of childlike innocence.
8: It's a collection of 18 miniature models, handcrafted. Most of them fit within about one cubic foot.
3: But according to special assistant to the medical examiner, Bruce Goldfarb, these objects were never intended for child's play.
8: They represent fairly ordinary everyday scenes, except for this body that's laying in the middle of the floor.
3: So who created these dollhouse versions of death? And how did they change forensic science forever? 1912, Chicago, Illinois. 34-year-old heiress, Frances Glesner Lee, is living a life of privilege. But the intelligent and quick-witted Frances is increasingly frustrated by the limited roles seen fit
8: for a lady. She wasn't allowed to go to college. Frances grew up in a time when women didn't have a whole lot of options. With time and
3: resources on her hands, Frances pours her focus into an acceptable new artistic pursuit, the making of miniatures. And soon, she embarks on an epic project.
8: She created miniature models of the entire Chicago Symphony Orchestra, down to the point of decorating each figure as that person in the orchestra.
3: Family and friends are astounded by her intricate creation. But with no real outlet for her talent, Frances' active imagination seizes upon a new interest, crime
8: novels. She was a fan of Sherlock Holmes stories where there's the smallest detail could be significant in solving the crime. In 1922,
3: Frances' brother introduces her to a real-life man of mystery, a forensic investigator named George McGrath.
8: And through McGrath, Francis learned about this emerging field of forensic science.
3: And soon, McGrath offers his unlikely protege a first-hand look at cutting-edge crime scene investigative techniques. He points out the importance of visually sweeping the scene for clues before jumping to conclusions.
8: The middle-aged heiress is mesmerized by the process wouldn't expect that she would be the kind of person who would roll up her sleeves, so to speak, skulking around sidewalks and looking for
3: clues. Then, McGrath confides some disturbing news. Police departments across the country aren't properly trained to examine crime scenes. In turn, critical evidence is being overlooked or destroyed, causing millions of cases to go unsolved every year.
8: People were literally getting away with murder. Francis is shocked. She felt we could do better here. It is the 20th century. We should be able to do something.
3: Little does she know, she's about to piece together a puzzle that will change
0: forensic science forever. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank.
1: you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. It's
3: the 1930s in Chicago, Illinois. 52-year-old heiress, Frances Glesner Lee, is fascinated by the emerging field of forensic science. But when she learns that thousands of crimes go unsolved every year due to lax investigation, she vows to do something about it. So can the heiress cut this massive problem down to size? Desperate to find a way to improve police training, Frances is struck by a brilliant idea. What if she marries her love of forensic science with her interest in making miniatures? She reasons that if she creates detailed dioramas based on actual crime scenes, they can be used to teach investigators how to systematically search for evidence.
8: The purpose of it, she said was to learn the truth in a nutshell. The idea was to create a testable, repeatable system to evaluate somebody's power of observation. In 1943, armed with
3: actual crime scene photos and witness statements, Francis gets to work crafting scenes of death. And over the course of the year, Frances and a team of carpenters construct three models to exacting detail. She calls them the
8: nutshell studies of unexplained death. And they reflect all manners of death, homicide, suicide, natural causes, accidental.
3: With a half dozen vignettes completed, Frances decides it is time to put her nutshells to the test. With her vast wealth, she finances a forensic seminar and invites beat cops, coroners, detectives, and even crime writers. They roll out the nutshells, the same ones that are on display at Baltimore's office of the medical examiner. And Francis gives the students some unusual instructions. You can't ask questions. Just using your eyes, what can you figure out from that? Transfixed by the miniature scene called the unpapered bedroom, Students attempt to unlock the mystery of how the woman depicted
8: met her end. One of the most important clues is one of the smallest, subtlest ones. If you look very, very closely, there's a very small smudge of lipstick. It's in the bottom side of the pillow. She was suffocated. Law enforcement officials are
3: blown away by how effective the nutshells are as both a teaching and an evaluation tool. Soon, states around the country adopt the nutshell studies to teach their own law enforcement officers. The
8: way things are done today uh, is because of Frances Glessner. She's a giant in the field, she's the mother of modern forensic investigation. And the legacy
3: of Frances Glesner Lee does not stop with the Nutshell Studies. Today, she is also remembered for endowing Harvard University's Department of Legal Medicine, the first academic forensic pathology program in the nation. And this collection of 18 remaining Nutshell Studies at Baltimore's Office of the Medical Examiner serve as a steadfast witness to the power of big ideas that come in small packages. In the idyllic town of New Iberia, Louisiana, perched on the banks of Lake Penure, sits the stately Joseph Jefferson Mansion and Gardens. Named for the famous 19th century actor who designed it, the property preserves the grand lifestyle that he enjoyed. Visitors can take in original furnishings, such as a rocking horse tricycle, a silver coffee still, and elaborately manicured gardens. But amidst this picture of grandeur is an exotic, centuries-old artifact that has survived unimaginable devastation.
5: The object weighs approximately 100 pounds and is two feet wide and about three feet tall. It's made of glazed ceramic material and is covered with
3: dragons. As property manager Mike Richard reveals... This urn tells the tale of a -a once-in-a-lifetime catastrophe almost too bizarre to believe.
5: After all of the devastation, this fragile object
3: survived. What cataclysmic environmental disaster did this antique jug endure? November 20th, 1980. It's early morning, and Mike Richard, the 32-year-old property manager of the Joseph Jefferson Estate, admires an antique dragon jar. One of eight he's recently acquired for a brand new visitor center. The
5: morning was an average morning, a normal morning. Fall day, beautiful.
3: Out on Lake Paneur, a busy waterway that connects to the Gulf of Mexico, fishing boats and oil rig workers toil away. But as the morning wears on, Mike begins to suspect something is amiss. I noticed pictures in the glass
5: walls of the building were moving and vibrating. And as the day progressed, it became more and more strange.
3: Then Mike hears an ominous sound coming from the lake. He grabs his camera and, with a colleague, rushes to the balcony of a building by the water's edge. There, they witness a mind-boggling sight. We're looking at a whirlpool that's
5: several hundred feet across. A huge vortex with water draining like down the bathtub drain, except on a monumental scale. You can hear the surge of water falling into the crater.
3: Under the incredible force of the whirlpool, the oil rig begins to topple over and the crew races to abandon the platform. Moments later, the impossible occurs. The
5: whole drilling rig
3: disappeared, just disappeared.
5: It seems that everything on the lake is in peril. There were barges bumping into each other, moving around like matchboxes. Pieces of land were falling in. You can hear and see power lines popping, the trees breaking and crashing
3: into the water. In the midst of this chaos, one thing becomes clear this devastating force is growing stronger, and Mike is in its path.
5: The growth crater started moving in our direction
3: what is causing this bizarre catastrophe and can it be stopped november 1980 jefferson island louisiana a massive whirlpool has formed at the center of lake paneur and is draining it like a bathtub A quarter of a mile wide, it's drawing barges, fishing boats, and even an oil rig into its swirling vortex. So what's behind this epic destruction? And how will it end?
5: The vortex was gobbling up the land in our direction. We were in imminent danger.
3: Mike decides to flee his vantage point by the lake. And it's not a moment too soon. The visitor center and other lakeside buildings begin to crumble. In a
5: short time after we left, the house was sucked into the whirlpool.
3: By the afternoon, the devastating whirlpool has drained nearly all of Lake Panure's 3.5 billion gallons of water, leaving behind nothing but a muddy lake bed.
5: At that point, everything went silent.
3: Safely away from the shoreline, the Joseph Jefferson Mansion has survived but many of the estate's buildings and 65 acres of manicured gardens lie in ruin. In the aftermath, the question remains, what on earth caused such a colossal disaster? It seems the answer can be found underground. The lake area is not only a wellspring of oil, but a rich source of salt. The hardest and the purest rock salt
5: found anywhere in the world is below our feet, and we're sitting on a mountain of it.
3: This massive and rich deposit just 50 meters below the lake bed has been an active mine for years. But on the day of the disaster, the oil rig on the lake's surface drilled too deep.
5: The salt mine has been punctured by the drilling rig. was human error.
3: Once the ceiling of the mine was ruptured, Lake Panure began to quickly fill the enormous subterranean cavern. As the waters cascaded down, the 51 workers in the salt mine rushed to escape and miraculously made it out alive. The
5: last people that escaped were up to their
3: waists in water. Two days after the devastation, Mike returns to assess the damage, and he's shocked by what he finds. The lake bed is once again full of water. The river that once flowed from Lake Peñor to the Gulf of Mexico has reversed direction, and salt water from the Gulf has filled the empty lake. Surveying the damage, Mike finds dozens of destroyed buildings, broken trees, and flooded gardens. But then, Mike spots something along the new lake's edge. I see this large
5: object, and in getting close, I recognize it's one of the jars.
3: Somehow, this fragile antique urn has survived the catastrophe. Encouraged, Mike begins the process of cleaning up and rebuilding the property's destroyed visitor center, homes, and gardens. And in 1984, the estate's doors are once again open to the public. Today, visitors flock to the Joseph Jefferson Mansion and Gardens year-round. And out on the porch sits the Chinese urn that buoyed its groundskeeper's hope when all else seemed lost. Los Angeles, California, is studded with world-famous shrines to the glitz and glamour of Hollywood myth-making. But to the northeast of Tinseltown is an institution that celebrates the real-life stories of L.A.'s most notable heists, criminals, and cops. The Los Angeles Police Museum. Here, visitors can find firearms from L.A.'s most notorious crimes, a bomb-defusing robot, and an actual police helicopter. But according to executive director Glenn Martin, it's the most unassuming items that are linked to one of the city's most shocking crimes. They're about a half inch
2: in length, gray or silver in color. They're pitted, corroded. The whole collection of them um, would fit in the palm of anybody's hand. These battered bits of metal tell a twisted tale of greed, glamour,
3: and the criminal underworld. What are these metal fragments, and how are they connected to one of the most notorious crimes of gangland L.A.? 1937, Los Angeles. A 31-year-old gangster and Brooklyn native named Benjamin Bugsy Siegel has just arrived in town. Hot-tempered and charismatic, Bugsy has been tasked with spearheading the New York mob's western expansion. And with its burgeoning film industry, the sunny metropolis seems like the perfect fit for the mobster. Bugsy Siegel
6: wanted to be a businessman and a star. He loved hanging out with the celebrities.
3: They loved hanging out with him. And in February of that year, at an A-list soiree, the gangster's life changes forever when he meets an aspiring actress named Virginia Hill. She's attractive, and she just sort of
6: oozes this sort of sensuality. And he sees her, she sees him,
3: and sparks fly. The starlet is no stranger to the criminal underworld. She's known to be a courier of the Chicago Mafia and has been romantically linked with Bugsy's arch-nemesis, Joe Adonis.
6: Joe Adonis is a boss of the mob, a one-time ally of Bugsy
3: Siegel, who's now his enemy. Despite her past associations, Siegel embarks on a torrid affair. He names his new obsession, Flamingo, for her long legs. But it's far from a perfect match. Bugsy Siegel
6: and Virginia Hill are both hot-tempered. And when they fight, it's physical. At the same time, they are also incredibly passionate. And they're
3: both driven by sex. As the relationship heats up, Siegel's professional ambition begins to grow. He convinces his bosses to bankroll the construction of a high-end hotel and casino. His chosen site? A small, dusty town in the Nevada desert called Las Vegas. Bugsy Siegel is building what he
6: thinks and wants to be a star attraction. This is where he gets to show he's one classy guy.
3: In honor of his girl, he names it the Flamingo. With millions of dollars on the line, the ambitious mobster decides to oversee the construction himself. But soon, the
2: massive undertaking spirals out of control. For a project that his bosses in the East Coast thought was going to run him about a million dollars, it wound up being in the $6 million range. Finally, in March of 1947, after countless delays, the Flamingo
3: opens its doors to the gambling public. But what Siegel envisioned as a premier destination fails to take off his East Coast mob financiers are livid. Investors from back East, they're mad. They're not making the profits they should. Consumed by the fate of the Flamingo, Bugsy's relationship with Virginia begins to suffer. And in June of 1947, after a heated argument, the tumultuous affair reaches a breaking point. Hill books a flight to Paris, leaving Siegel all alone. Then, four days later... Bugsy is relaxing after an early dinner, when suddenly the tranquil evening air is pierced by a
6: thunderous roar. From the bushes just outside, shots are fired.
3: Four of them hit Siegel. Investigators are quickly called to the scene and discover the dead, bullet-riddled body of Bugsy Siegel. Bugsy Siegel sort of crumpled up. It's gruesome. It's ugly. All signs seem to indicate that he was the victim of a cold blooded hit. But who has sent Bugsy Siegel to his grave? June 20th, 1947. Charismatic mob kingpin Benjamin Bugsy Siegel has built a gambling empire in the Las Vegas desert. But along the way, he's ruffled more than a few feathers. So when he's gunned down in his California home, police have no shortage of suspects. So who killed Bugsy Siegel?
2: Investigators sweep the scene. There's no weapon, there's no footprints, fingerprints, tire tracks. There's really a very small amount of evidence. Among the scarce clues detectives recover
3: are the bullet fragments fired by the murderer's weapon. Now on loan to the Los Angeles Police Museum. With the case making headlines across the country, police are under pressure to find the culprit. If you think about it, it's
6: kind of hard to think of who at that moment wasn't mad at Bugsy Siegel.
3: Authorities suspect that Siegel's East Coast bosses had tired of his costly mismanagement of the Flamingo and decided to rub him out. Las Vegas is potentially their golden goose, and they don't want Bugsy messing it up. But soon, a very different theory emerges, that the gangster's murder wasn't a matter of business, but of love and revenge. It's believed that Virginia Hill was ordered to spy on Bugsy for the Chicago mob. But as their relationship grew closer than expected, her former paramour, Joe Adonis, began to seethe.
6: Joe Adonis really resented that Bugsy took
3: Virginia from him. Some believe that Adonis ordered the execution of his romantic rival and that Virginia was alerted to the impending hit.
6: There's a theory that Virginia Hill certainly knew it was coming and that's why she's
3: away and may have been paid to be away. The idea gains credence when police discover that in the wake of the murder, Virginia has rekindled her relationship with Joe Adonis. But when authorities question her, she denies any knowledge of the hit. Police continue to scour for leads. But over time, the investigation stalls. And to this day, the slaying of Bugsy Siegel remains one of the Los Angeles Police Department's most perplexing unsolved cases. And these bullet fragments at the Los Angeles Police Museum remind us of the violent end of a ruthless gangster and his unlikely legacy in the Nevada desert. Nestled in the Silicon Valley, Mountain View, California, was once home to the storied tech region's first manufacturer of semiconductors, the building blocks of computers. So it's only fitting that it hosts an institution which chronicles the devices of the information age, the Computer History Museum. Its collection features such items as a massive radar console from the Cold War, IBM's 1964 mainframe computer system, and a 1970s United Airlines reservation terminal. But there's one item that museum curator Dag Spicer believes captures the more mischievous side of this ever-advancing industry.
2: This box is about 5 inches by 3 inches by 2 inches, and it has keys on the front of it. Attached to this artifact is a small speaker. This innocuous
3: looking box played a devious part in one of the greatest technological advances
2: of all time. This little device let its user control one of the biggest technical systems mankind has ever created. Who designed this
3: device? And what multi-billion dollar company did it inspire? 1957 Richmond, Virginia. Joe Ingresia is a blind eight-year-old boy. He's exceptionally bright and completely obsessed with one thing, the telephone.
2: He was pretty isolated being blind, and uh, the telephone was a, a lifeline, and it was his link to the outside world. But he is most captivated by the subtle sounds that
3: come through his receiver. The phone system is controlled by a network of computers, which communicate through a series of tones.
2: One of the things Joe did was, he listened very, very closely to the various sounds that the phone line made during the progress of this call. One day, while
3: making a long distance call, Joe casually whistles one of those tones back into his phone. And suddenly, his line disconnects. The curious boy makes another call he whistles the same tone, and once again,
2: the line goes dead. Joe had perfect pitch, and one thing he could do by whistling was to generate extremely precise notes. In fact, the notes that were the language of the telephone system.
3: While the line seems dead, Joe experiments with various patterns of the tone and makes a critical discovery. By whistling a particular sequence, he can make long-distance calls almost anywhere. He later comes to learn his parents are never charged for the calls. With these discoveries, Joe's realized that he's hacked the world's largest computer, the telephone system. 11 years later, in 1968, a 19-year-old Joe Ingressia is studying mathematics at the University of South Florida.
2: He quickly acquires a reputation for being this pretty unusual guy who can make free telephone calls around the world.
3: For a dollar a call, Joe offers his unique services to fellow students. But when the university gets wind of Ingresia's operation, it is quickly shut down and he is placed on academic probation. Little does he know that his childhood prank will inspire a technological leap that will change the world forever. 1957, Richmond, Virginia. A seven-year-old genius, Joe Ingressia, has just hacked into the world's largest computer, the telephone system. For years, he makes free, long-distance calls before authorities finally crack down on him. But what no one knows is that Ingressia's prank is about to inspire a technological revolution. Joe's case makes headlines, and the public is gripped by the tale of the young man who can manipulate a massive computer with ease. One man fascinated by the idea is John Draper, a 26-year-old former Air Force electronics technician. And he is compelled to take this concept one step further. John Draper sought to automate what Joe was doing with his whistles. Using electronic circuits, a keypad, a battery, and speaker. Draper constructs a small, portable device that can be used by anyone to make free calls. While it is sometimes unreliable, word of this new gadget spreads quickly among electronics hobbyists, who dub the device a blue box. And suddenly, a new subculture
2: is born. The group of people are called phone freakers. The freaker could refer to either freak as in their freaky people or it could stand for frequency, which was a key concept in manipulating the telephone system. By 1971, two college dropouts hear about Draper's box and smell a lucrative business opportunity. Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak, two high school friends from Northern California. They aim to take the
3: device one step further by replacing the unreliable analog components with more precise and superior digital circuits.
2: Digital approach was more accurate and used less power.
3: They sell the devices, like this one on display at the Computer History Museum, for $170 a pop. And the money starts
2: rolling in. The end result was that Wozniak and Jobs ended up building almost 200 of these blue boxes and selling them to mainly students in their dorms at uh, UC Berkeley. Emboldened by the
3: success of their partnership, in 1976, the two Steves launch Apple, a major milestone in the advancement of the personal computer.
2: And Jobs has often said, without the blue boxes, there would never have been an Apple computer.
3: By the 1980s, most phone companies make the switch to a digital system, and the blue box becomes an outdated piece of technology. Today, this remarkable device sits on display at the Computer History Museum, a reminder of how an eight-year-old boy hacked the largest network of processors in the world and helped usher in the computer age. From a scandalous stage act to a mobland murder, a nail-biting rescue to dollhouses of death. I'm Don Wildman, and these are the Mysteries at the Museum.